<clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. Are there stories out there about you that you wish people wouldn't tell? Yeah, I think probably all of us have stories out there that we wish others wouldn't tell. We all have stories from our past that we don't particularly want to relive, uh, but then you find yourself around certain people and they always want to tell those stories. I found that siblings are especially good at this at wanting to tell the stories that you would prefer not to remember. Now, maybe if there is something funny about the story, uh, it can have some sort of redeeming quality to it. Like, hey, remember the time when you were really dumb and it was funny and we all laughed and you can like go along with that. But then there are some stories of us when we were perhaps at our worst. Stories that we hope uh, will never be told again. And let me just lay out a, a general rule Okay, and you would probably all agree with me on this. It's okay for you to tell the story, right? It's not okay for others to tell these stories because some of these stories uh, are painful and the retelling causes us to relive some things that we would just as soon choose to forget. And I can think of several stories from my life that fall into this category. Even just in my marriage with Nisha, there are some stories from early in our marriage um, when we were still figuring things out that I would not mind if I never heard these stories ever, ever, ever again. And then there is another category of stories that just don't get told, period. And they don't get told for a reason. And even your dumbest cousin seems to recognize that there is no value in the retelling of that particular story. Now, the Bible, amongst many things, is a collection of stories. But the Bible does not try to gloss over the ugly parts of the story. In fact, it lays everything pretty much bare and shows it plainly as it is. And because of that, there are several stories in the Bible that leave us... I don't know, at, at least feeling uneasy, at worst wondering what this means about God and the world and everything that we know about it. I mean, just to give you a pretty benign example, uh, we get to see the victorious David, who was a man of God and led the nation of Israel to great victory, but we also get to see the murderous and adulterous David. And yes, I do mean get. And, and you know, the, the thing is, even when it comes to God, we see a God who lovingly creates the world and a God who, in great frustration, destroys the world with a flood. And all of these things are laid out there for us in the Bible story for a reason. We don't always know what the reason is except that we know that the Bible tries to tell this sort of unvarnished story of the relationship between God and his people, so it does not gloss over the ups and the downs. It does not skip the difficult moments. But what do we do when we read about these difficult moments? In these moments, we are confronted with all of the challenges that arise 
when your characters include a very messy and sometimes ugly people and a perfect God who has ideals and principles and things that need to be carried out. And sometimes we are often, sometimes we are often, we are often left with questions that we may not be able to answer. And maybe you have experienced some of these questions in conversations with others where maybe someone has pointed to a specific chapter of the Bible or a specific occurrence, a specific something that happened, and they ask you, how can this be true about God if this happens? And you are left with this sort of, that's a tough one. Initially, I was going to skip over the next section of the book of Acts. After all, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and while I like to do long series, I typically don't like to do 28-week series. So I'm going to have to skip over something at some point, and if there were ever a story to skip in the book of Acts, it would be the one that I am going to cover today. The first section of chapter 5 would be a good candidate. And the reason why you would want to skip it is because it tells a difficult story which leaves us with some uneasy feelings and more than a few questions. It tells the story in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. If you know this story, then you can understand why I might choose to skip it. But then I began studying the passages in an effort to not teach them. And I realized that there was too much there for me to skip it. So let me set the table for you about where we are in the story. The first four chapters of Acts have been nothing short of a miraculous journey for these early Christians. They were powered by the Holy Spirit. God was alive and active in them, which meant that they could, amongst many things, um, speak in different languages, at least initially. We don't really know how long that carried out down the line. They could heal those they met, even if it was a lifelong condition. They could speak with a power and authority they should not have had. They could uh, be bold in the face of opposition as the Holy Spirit gave them all that they needed to spread the gospel to a hostile world. And because of all these things, the word about Jesus was getting out there, and thousands of people were responding. It was a very dynamic time, and the Spirit was really transforming the lives of many through their belief in Jesus. They had all things in common, Acts says, even going so far as to sell possessions so that they could take care of the needs of those around them. And besides this instance that we've seen so far in Acts chapter 4 of them being confronted by the religious leaders, this early movement of Jesus seems to be sailing right along, figuring out how to be a community of Jesus on the fly as they went, and doing an amazing job of it. And even that confrontation with the religious leaders was not treated like much of an obstacle in Acts chapter 4. They were confronted, they said what they were doing, they were told not to do it, they left and did it anyway. I mean, and they just go about and God is blessing them. And so part of the question we ask at this point, if we're just following along the story, never having read it before, would be, well, 
what's going to go wrong? Because, like, if God is behind this and God is making all this happen and they are trusting in God, then where is the first blip going to be? Now, from our memory of the retelling, we would say, well, I mean, there was the arrest. Yeah, sure. And, and we know that persecution is coming. But in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 11, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I'm just going to sum it up real quick and dirty for you. They sold some land, kept some of the money, and took the rest to the apostles and laid it at their feet for the community. However, when they did this, they lied and told the apostles that the money they brought was all of the money from the sale. And they didn't say that they kept some back. And because of this, they were both struck dead on the spot. So there are some questions that come up when we read this story. And this is a classic, a classic, if God is this, then how could this story? You know what I'm saying when I mean that? If God is loving, then how could this happen? If God is merciful, then how could this happen? If It's a classic one of those. And so there are some questions we have, such as, um, why were they struck dead? And how does this mess mesh with the message of the gospel of the time, which is Jesus came to save the world and to love everyone so that they could be in relationship with God. Because this seems to tell a different story that maybe God loves you, but if you make a mistake, you're dead. Is God really this harsh and unforgiving? And perhaps the ultimate question about this, is this fair? Is this a fair treatment of Ananias and Sapphira because surely they did not deserve to die? These are all good questions about a difficult story, but I would like to point one just small factor out about these questions. Who do they all center around? God. Why did God do this? And some people would point to this story to show an inconsistency in who God is. Again, if God is this, then how could he do this? And they are good questions, which is why we should just skip this story, right? I mean, why ask for trouble? Well, if we are going to study Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and really understand it, we cannot start with Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. That's part of our problem, people. We go right to the story and look for all the answers within the story, but here's the problem. The answers are not all in the story. They are in other places. There are other things that happen that help us to understand what is going on in this totally weird and uncomfortable story. So we have to back up and go to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, because Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11 comes in sort of a way in response to what you see in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. So let's look there, starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it all at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay. This passage here is another summary from Luke describing what was going on in the community of believers, much like we saw at the end of Acts chapter 2. And the life of the community was marked by four pretty distinct things. Number one, they had unity in mind and heart. And in a way that we can tell just by reading it is, is pretty extraordinary the way in which they have this unity of mind and heart. So they are, they are thinking similar things and, um, and, and feeling similar things, and at the very least, they are not disagreeing about what is important to think and feel. They are sharing their possessions so that there would not be anyone needy within the group. There is the power and the witness of the apostles, and I love this expression, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons. The grace of God was what was driving all of this in them. The power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God was moving them to make these decisions for one another. This is why they had such unity. This is what led them to all these things. It didn't happen by accident, and it didn't happen because they were just good people. It was the power of God moving amongst them to where they could be described, unironically, as being of one heart and mind. Now, just to give us a little bit more clarity on this, there are thousands of them at this point. Thousands. And this is the description that we get, which just makes it even that much more incredible. And this was the basis for them sharing their possessions. First, no one within the group claimed that any of their possessions were their own. And this picture is one of unqualified sharing, of not claiming owner's rights or of saying what's mine is yours. Instead, the, the general view that they seem to have had about their things was, I have this so that we can benefit. And then those things were actually turned into benefit for the community. So it wasn't just an ideal like this was actually happening. And, and, and the second expression was that they shared everything they had. The Greek literally reads, everything was in common with them. So again, they didn't view their possessions as their own for their own benefit, but they viewed their possessions as something that could be used to benefit the whole. Now here's what's really interesting about this idea. This was not uniquely a Christian idea. 
the Greeks shared a common, for them, what was a myth that in primitive times people lived in an ideal state in which there was no ownership, but everything was held in common. More common with this myth, with this myth was the Greek ideal of friendship, according to which true friends held everything in common and were of one mind. Some guy named Aristotle, I don't know, talked about this, and he's reputed to have defined a friend who was one soul dwelling in two bodies. Now, such expressions became commonplace and are found in Roman writers such as Cicero, as well as Hellenistic Jews uh, such as Philo. So when Luke describes this community in these terms, he is doing something pretty specific for people who would have been reading this. And those who would have been reading, it would have invoked an immediate response that what they esteemed as an ideal within Greek thinking, this new group of Christians were actually doing. That they had discovered through the grace and gift of Jesus how to live out this ideal of basically one love, one people, one body. And moreover, this reinforces the Old Testament ideal. This, this idea that there would be no needy among you actually for the Jewish people starts way back in the Old Testament. Jewish didn't, or Jesus didn't invent this either. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15, they're talking about the year of Jubilee. Every seven years when things are, when debts are forgiven and when people are set free from different things. And listen to this from Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 5. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. So, you may not be aware of this, but there were some criteria that the Jews believed would usher in the time, ultimately, of the true Messiah. Uh, one of them, just to give you an example, was if the whole nation of Israel could practice Sabbath correctly one time. But another clue or another, another show would be that there were no needy amongst them because they were taking care of one another and providing for everyone's needs, not one person looking to their needs above someone else. So in many ways, these new Christians, who again were all Jews, might have saw themselves as fulfilling the call of God for his people and ushering in the time of the true and the real Messiah when all of God's people will be together, will be one, and there will be no needy because God is blessing them and giving them all that they need. And it sure sounds like that's happening, right? So the way that they sought to do this was pretty radical. Those who had land or houses would sell them. They would bring the proceeds and lay them at the apostles' feet. And those proceeds then were distributed to the needy among them so that no one had need while someone else had no needs. So there are a few things we need to note about this, what was happening. Number one, there was no transfer of ownership 
No control or production of production or income, no requirement to surrender one's property to the community. None of this was mandated in order to be part of this new group that was forming. Instead, all of it, whoever chose to do it, it was completely voluntary. And it's consistent through the use of the verbs that they use to describe this. And, and, and secondly, Barnabas is set forward of an example of how this was a good thing and this is what someone did that he sold his property. And if Barnabas was forced to do it, it wouldn't be a very good example of how the community was responding in such grace and goodness to one another in order to do this. So how are we to understand what was happening? Because our first question when we read passages like this, which we talked about a few weeks ago, was, do we have to do this? And it's the wrong question. Because what I want you to know is no one had to do this. They chose to. Because the grace of God was moving among them. The Holy Spirit was empowering them. They trusted God to give them all that they needed. And they wanted to give from what they had so that there would be no one in need. That's it. That's what was happening. If Steve and Shirley wanted to sell their house and bring it and give all the money, it's wonderful. If Randy and Debbie chose not to, that's fine too. Like it didn't matter. What mattered was that the needs of the community were being met and no one was needy. That is what mattered. Because maybe Steve and Shirley did that today, but maybe in a month, Randy and Debbie are going to come forward to meet new needs that Steve and Shirley's gift can no longer meet. You see? It wasn't about everybody giving up everything at once. It was about the needs of the community being met through the grace of God. That is the context that leads us to chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, just as Barnabas did. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right. Still a little intense. 
But here's the question I have for you. Does the reading of chapter 4 perhaps help you read chapter 5 differently? It does for me because the end of chapter 4 offers me the context in which I can understand this story. So what happened here? Well, first, I want to say what didn't happen. Ananias and Sapphira were not struck down because they didn't give enough money to the movement. That's not why. That seems to be the conclusion we can come to at times when we look at this story. Like, what did God want from them? They gave a lot of money. Was that not enough? And I want to suggest something to you that you may have never thought of before, and that is this. The actual amount they gave didn't really matter. Like, in a, the actual amount that they gave didn't really matter in the slightest, so don't be confused by that because this is not a passage about generosity. It really isn't. That's, that's not the purpose of this story. They were also not in trouble because they didn't give the whole amount. That is also a misreading of what happens. God wanted it all, and they didn't give it all. No, <laughs> that was not the problem. The issue was not how much they gave. Here is what actually happened. They said that they gave all the money to the community when in actuality they didn't. Now, some things we need to understand about this act of giving. Number one, no one asked them to sell. Number two, no one asked them to donate. So they did it of their own free will. Number three, no one asked them to give it all or to give part or to give anything. They did it of their own free will. This was their choice. But they claimed to have given all to the community when in actuality they held back. And Ananias and Sapphira sold property, took some of the proceeds to the apostles, and kept some from themselves. And the mistake they made was that they chose to tell the community that they gave it all to God when they really didn't. There is the use of a rare Greek verb here, which I am not going to try to say, to describe the action in holding back part of the money. And the verb that is used there means to pilfer, to purloin, or to embezzle. Significantly, the rare form of this verb occurs in the Greek version of Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 26, which is the story of Achan, who, when they destroyed Jericho, took some of the things from Jericho when they were supposed to leave it all behind. And Achan received a similar judgment, death, from God himself. When Peter questioned Ananias, he told him exactly what the problem was. And the question that he asked is, why have you embezzled, kept for yourself a portion of the sale price? And he goes further, why have you allowed Satan to enter your heart? Okay, so we have to understand that the problem that Peter is identifying clearly through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Like God is, God is speaking, the Holy Spirit is speaking through this moment. 
what he is addressing is what is happening with Ananias and Sapphira in comparison to the whole and not just this issue of you held something back. Which is why we have to look back one more time to the end of chapter 4. The community was of one heart and one mind drawn together by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this spiritual unity lay behind their ability to not claim their possessions as their own and they're sharing everything that they had. This this community was a community of the Holy Spirit and in this community they placed their trust and found their identity and their security. And this is where the problem, the first problem within this community really arose because this was not true with Ananias. His heart was not of one heart and mind. He had one foot in the community and one foot out still trying to hold on to the security and wealth of his possessions, which shows that his view of what God was doing and where his heart, heart and mind were, were in a different place than everyone else. And so he chose to lie. He chose to lie. I gave everything when he didn't. And to lie with regard to this sharing was to undermine the unity of the community and more so to undermine the power of the spirit within that unity. And that's why Peter accused Ananias of lying to the spirit. The the Greek expression is actually stronger than that. It says that he belied or he falsified the spirit. In other words, him thinking that he could come forward and say, I have given everything, I have, I, I have donated everything, and lying about it was in, fe- was in effect a, a denial or a falsification of the Spirit's presence. Here's a question I guarantee you have never asked about this story. What would have happened if nothing would have happened? You understand the question? What would have happened if nothing would have happened? Peter reminded Ananias that he had been under no compulsion. He didn't have to do this. And even if he sold it, he could have retained as much as he wanted and given as much as he wanted. The act of dedicating the land or property or proceeds to the people, again, was strictly voluntary. But here's the thing. Once it was pledged, it became an entirely different matter because you were giving it to who? To God. It had been dedicated to God, to the community, and in lying about the proceeds, he violated a trust. And ultimately, he didn't just lie to the community. He had lied to God. Not that he hadn't betrayed the community or not that he hadn't lied to the Spirit, but rather, and get this, this is, this is, this is an important one. To betray the community was to lie to the Spirit that filled the community. And to falsify the Spirit of God was an affront to God himself. 
This holding back in one lie could have undone everything that they were about. It could have undone everything that they were about. And so, Ananias was struck dead. We are not told how it happened, but the implication of the story is certainly that God was involved. It was not Peter that struck him dead. And he was very unceremoniously and quickly buried. Um, That was very unusual at the time for someone to be buried that fast, but that's how it happened. And then Sapphira came in, and Sapphira was given an equal chance to be honest about it. And Sapphira chose, again, to lie to the community, therefore lying to the Spirit, therefore lying to God. And like her husband, she was struck dead. Now, what are we to take from this story then? There are a lot of things I think we can take from it. Um, one of the most obvious ones, I, applications for us, is how wealth and money are contrary to what the Spirit of God is often doing in our lives. Uh, much of Luke's gospel deals with matters of money. Uh, there's the parable of the debtors in Luke chapter 7, the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, the rich fool. Uh, In Luke chapter 12, the unjust steward in chapter 16, the rich man in Lazarus again in chapter 16, and the parable of the pounds in Luke 19. And all but one of those parables are unique to Luke, which tells us what? That Luke was concerned about the role that money played in the Christian life and how it could draw people away from Jesus. Wealth for Luke was not a sign of divine approval, it was a danger. The rich young man couldn't part with his money and therefore walked away sad. And and another rich man was declared a fool because he wanted to build for himself bigger barns. And what happened to the man who wanted to build for himself bigger barns? He died that night. But in some ways, the money application is the easiest one to make. There are two others that I want us to give some serious thought to as we close out here this morning. The first is what it means to, a, to be a community where the grace of God abounds, the Holy Spirit empowers, and who you are within those things defines everything. The church is a holy body, the realm of a spirit, and by the way, this passage is the first time in the book of Acts that Luke calls it a church. By the power of this spiritual presence in its midst, the young community worked miracles, they witnessed fearlessly, and they were blessed with incredible growth. And and the Spirit was the power, the grace of God, behind its unity, and its unity was the power behind its witness. But just as with God there is both justice and mercy, so with the Spirit there is an underside to this blessing of being completely pushed forward by the power of God. There is judgment, there is consequence to going against it, and Ananias and Sapphira experienced it. Because you see, 
The Spirit of God is not to be taken lightly. And as the Spirit of God, he must be viewed with fear in the best sense of the word, which means reverent awe and respect. So, we have to consider that there is, in fact, something unique and different about being a community that is formed and powered by the Holy Spirit. And there is no room within that community for values of the world to just sneak their way in and be okay. Because those values of the world are going to contradict the Spirit. And then what happens? You see? Because if nothing happens... If nothing happens, the values of the world are going to continue. Like ants at a picnic. To keep coming more and more and more. Until ultimately the food that you brought is overtaken. But the second is even more galling. (laughs) In a morning that has been so fun. And it is the concept of unity itself. If this action had gone unchecked, it would have undermined the unity of the believers. Because, you know, Sterling and Michelle would have heard that Stephen Shirley didn't actually give all of it. And they would have heard everyone talking about how generous Stephen and Shirley were while knowing that Stephen Shirley actually held something back. And the question that would creep in to Sterling and Michelle's mind would be, how can we kill Stephen Shirley? No, just kidding, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Would be, I mean, if you can just do this, then does this matter as much as I think it does? Or are we who we think we are? If... People can just do this. If the action had gone unchecked, they would have no longer been of one heart and mind. They would have had people amongst them acting in a way that went against the Spirit, unchecked. This had to come out in a strange way so that the people of God could stay unified. But did they have to die? in order to make this point. Can I tell you something about that question? It doesn't matter what you think about them dying. You can think it's unfair, you can think it's unjust. I wanna tell you something interesting though, they were never condemned eternally. That's nowhere in the text. They did die. But that's us trying to turn this story back to God, right? And to try to blame God for his actions in this. Well, yeah, what they did wasn't right, but God didn't have to do that. And that is the easy backdoor way out of this story. It is. It's not letting it speak and be what it is, because this story says less about who God is than it says about who we are. That even in the midst of a spirit-led, God-filled grace movement of power and amazement, 
we are still going to try to find a way to keep our toe out of it and in what we want as opposed to going along with what God is doing. Even if it's blowing the doors off of everything. It says a lot how we can willingly allow ourselves to be misled. Ananias, and this is true, I, I just, you find these kind of things. Ananias and Sapphira invented a way to undermine the community and lie to God so that they could look good and keep what they wanted to. That's the story. They did this to themselves. And in the name of, ironically, in the name of grace, the Holy Spirit and unity, God acted and removed them. It makes me wonder. I'm going to ask a really terrible question in a minute, so just hold yourselves ready for that. It makes me wonder how often and how easily we have put our own interests ahead of the interests of the whole. And it makes me wonder about how at times we have probably even done this in the name of benefiting the community. We cannot let the community go this way because this is not what God would want. And perhaps the worst thing that has never happened to us is that the Holy Spirit has never intervened. Which tells me that maybe we are not always doing such a good job at being a community that is filled with grace and powered by the Holy Spirit. If we can just divide ourselves over any little thing. And it convicts me about what it means to be committed to God. And why do I think it's okay to say that I am giving God everything when I am actually holding things back? I think it's okay because I'm never confronted about it. And who will ever really know? And if I can draw an irony from this. Imagine the good that God would have continued to do through the honest gift of Ananias and Sapphira. Through what they did give. With no grudge or anger to what they held back to keep for themselves. If they had honestly been willing to give what they wanted to to God, then their gift would have been a blessing. And what they held back could have been used later. Perhaps God works better with us when we acknowledge that we are holding something back than he can when we, are say, when we say we're giving it all. And we're so afraid, Right? We have to say we're giving it all. Megan will sing, I surrender all if you want, and we can all, we can all do that, you know. And So many questions. But they're not the questions we had when we came into it. They're different.
We want to be a community church that is filled with the grace and love of God. We want to be a community that is powered by the Holy Spirit. We want to be a community where people, out of their own just goodness and love, would give up things to help others. Not because they have to, it's just, shoot, they just want to. And, and that kind of place is a place that God will grow. That God will bring in change and power and movement. But we have to recognize that there are challenges to being in that kind of place. And it doesn't just start with all of us being of one heart and mind. I think it starts in one heart and one mind. Each of our own heart and mind. Deciding what we're going to be about and what is going to fill us and what we are going to take forward. May we not be the cautionary tale of what happens when you try to undermine the unity of God's people. Instead, may we be those who are bringing whatever we can, whenever we can, and rejoicing in the goodness of grace of God. Amen?